How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm here today with Roger Annis. Roger is the editor at newcoldwar.org, which I've been following a fair bit to try to get a handle on what's going on in Ukraine I and, and other places, other parts of the world as well, where the new Cold War is going on. Uh, I, folks uh, listening may remember Halina Mokrushina, who also did an interview with me on this show I actually found her through newcoldwar.org and, also, of course, a helpful listener who directed me to newcoldwar.org. I didn't need to be directed because I already knew the editor, Roger, uh, because Roger was also the editor of the Canada Haiti Action Web, uh, Canada Haiti Action Network website for about 10 years. And Roger, that's how I met you uh, in Vancouver. Uh, when I spoke at a to a meeting of Canada Haiti Action Network, so it's great to have you on. Thank you for joining me today, Roger. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to be talking with you. Okay, so Roger, um, newcoldwar.org. I'm looking at the site now, and there's a there's a declaration. It's called New Cold War: Ukraine and Beyond, and I clicked on the about page and it describes how you're and you see yourself as independent but not nonpartisan and and really you 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 cite this anti-war declaration where your demand the demands of this declaration are for um, an immediate end to the war by the Kiev government in Ukraine for direct talks between Kiev and the representatives of Donetsk and Lugansk republics I understand you've traveled to those and an immediate end to the Kiev government human rights violations. And, and so it's this list of, of kind of anti-war demands that make that that are based on the idea that the Kiev government is primarily responsible for the war. So I wanted to just start there. Tell me how you came to those conclusions and why you wanted to set up this new Cold War. Yeah, well, I had site. a lot of familiarity with Ukraine already, although pretty basic, I'll, I'll confess. Uh, partly uh, due to uh, living in Toronto in the 1970s, and I met a lot of the young generation of Ukrainian Canadians who were grappling with the, um, uh, the, uh, the difficult upbringing, where people who were left-wing in their impulse and outlook, and yet growing up in a in a pretty right-wing environment in the Ukrainian Canadian community they were a part of. So I was quite inspired by them at the time, and I took a certain interest in this country, Ukraine, at that time, and I've read the history and so forth during my adult life, but it was really the events of February 2014, seeing the overthrow of Ukraine's elected government that really uh, got me beginning to do more research and also beginning to write about it. I saw a lot of parallels with the events happening in Ukraine to what I had experienced rather deeply, as you, as you have done, uh, with the coup in Haiti in 2004. Uh, in fact, I came to, I call Ukraine today something akin to, to Haiti on steroids. Uh, so I was invited to an anti-war conference that took place in Crimea in July of 2014, and at that conference, 
uh, three of us who were there at, uh, from Canada uh, decided to reach out to others and form the NewColdWar.org website, which began in October of 2014. I've been writing, traveling, and speaking on the issue ever since because I think there's just so much uh, that's important about what's been taking place in Ukraine during the past three years. So it's impossible to talk everything about Ukraine is positioned in terms of Russia. And so it's immediately the, the first thing that somebody, you know, would ask you is what's your what's your position on Russia? You said the you said the Kiev government was the elected government was overthrown. But but to a to a supporter of the new government, it would they would say you we, what this oh, the government that was overthrown was some kind of a puppet of Russia or a puppet of Putin. So how do you understand Russia today and Russia's role in Ukraine and beyond that Russian foreign policy? Well, as you say, that is the question of all questions today. I think uh, Russia has, Russia's response to the events in Ukraine has been almost entirely defensive. I don't apportion any blame to Russia for uh, the crisis in, in Ukraine. Uh, what we saw happen in Ukraine was not dissimilar to what had happened in Egypt in 2013 with the military coup that overthrew uh, the elected uh, government of Egypt, and specifically the President Mohamed Morsi. That is, you had a very dissatisfied population, probably a minority of the Ukrainian population, um, deeply dissatisfied with the status quo, maybe a majority, but... Uh, regardless, uh, certainly a lot of popular dissatisfaction in Ukraine with uh, the economic and social situation in the country. Uh, but that's because Ukraine had stagnated economically since the demise of the Soviet Union. Uh, Russia's economy took a different direction uh, beginning in 2000, kind of coincidental and symbolized with the election of Vladimir Putin as president. But obviously Russia has... Uh, a major oil and gas producer had a lot of uh, wealth generated through the 2000s with which to uh, to finance and, su and sustain um, significant economic uh, progress and, and in particular improvements to living standards. That didn't happen in Ukraine. You had 25 years of stagnation. And so it was this popular dissatisfaction in Ukraine with the status quo um, uh, that came to a head once already in 2004-2005 with the so-called Orange Revolution. Came to a head again in 2013. And so, and this time in 2013, the extreme right wing in Ukraine and the conservative right wing were were highly organized, highly prepared to carry out an overthrow of the elected uh, president. And so, there we stand uh, today. There, there's been no. Everything has gone backwards uh, in Ukraine socially and economically uh, since the overthrow of the president. Of course, Russia is blamed for everything, but all Russia has done is respond to uh, to this drive by uh, the right wing and the extreme right in, in Ukraine who have waged their uh, campaign to for a closer economic association with Europe, what I call austerity Europe. They have waged this campaign in the name of um, opposition to uh, to Russia, and the whole thing has been terribly destructive, not 
just for the Russian people, who of course have come under economic sanctions and every other manner of uh, hostility from the West, but it's also, I think, been a disaster for the Ukrainian people themselves. And so there we are, three years later, we're writing and publishing and speaking and doing uh, what we can as intensely now as we were as we were three years ago. The idea of Russia expanding into Ukraine, I've always, I've been hearing about Russian expansionism. It strikes me as, you know, you look at a map and you see the NATO bases moving east closer to, to Russia. There's no equivalent of Russian bases expanding into the west. Just doesn't, the, the idea that the Russians have an expansionist agenda doesn't strike me as a I, I agree, way of and I, I think it. the same could be said about the situation in Syria as well. And he, here's where it's so important to understand the nature of, of the, the present-day Russian economy. Um, myself and my colleague Renfrey Clark have written um, a number of articles and essays in the last, well, in the last beginning, just about three years ago, arguing that Russia is not an imperialist country and economy. And without getting into a long description, what we mean by that is that Russia's economy is not fundamentally defined by the export of capital, that is, the drive to seek to exploit labor and natural resources beyond its borders. Uh, whereas, on the, uh, by contrast, this is precisely what characterizes every country that we could accurately and scientifically call imperialist. Russia had a very strong economic presence in Ukraine, um, not so much anymore, but this was not um, an economic presence in Ukraine that is comparable to, for example, Canada in Latin America, or the United States in Latin America, or the European imperialist powers in, in Africa and in the Middle East and so on. It's, it's, it's a different uh, kind of economy that is not driven to to seek uh, labor and natural resources abroad to exploit the relationship with Ukraine was was much more of a historically founded relationship more or less uh, of equals and I I maintain that that uh, was the case in uh, 2013 and 2014 at, at that time the Ukrainian government was basically that is the previous government under Viktor Yanukovych was presented with an ultimatum by the European Union and by the United States, which is that you have to break your, the economic ties of the country to Russia, which were very extensive, and carry out this wrenching and frankly destructive turn towards association with austerity Europe. And it was when President Yanukovych pulled back from the brink of a decision to do so that all hell broke loose. Can I can we talk about the imperialism question? Because I had a listener write me, and I thought that I thought his what he wrote was fair. Because he said we understand imperialism to be. Because you're talking about imperialism in the sense that I think Lenin talked about it as the highest stage of capitalism, or uh, some of Lenin's contemporaries, the idea of capitalist powers producing so much surplus that they then have to seek. Uh, markets and, and opportunities in un, undeveloped countries. I guess com, you know communists or socialists have been theorizing about imperialism for over a century in that sense. And so that's where your argument fits in. But one of my listeners, Brooks, I'm shouting out Brooks here because I know he's going to hear it. He said, you know, the real what we understand imperialism to be is the violation of sovereignty. 
And so if Russia has violated the sovereignty of, you know, Hungary in 1956, and if Russia is kind of violating the sovereignty of Ukraine, although this, I, I, I think we're, when your answer, we're going to find that to be a more complicated question. But how would you, how would you, could we understand Russia to be imperialist in that sense, in the sense of violating the sovereignty of weaker countries I don't think so periphery that could be a description of an imperialist country but I don't think it's a defining characteristic of an imperialist country so let me give an example I think that we can look at India's relationship to Kashmir or Brazil's relationship to Haiti Brazil is the lead military um, force in the UN occupation regime in Haiti with which you would be very familiar um, I could take other examples of countries that are, I think, pretty arguably not imperialist, um, that have uh, unequal and and exploitive relationships with smaller countries. And, I mean, I could think of probably lots of examples of this. Um, so this, you know, this relationship of Brazil to Haiti, it doesn't make Brazil an imperialist country. That that could be that could be a factor. Um, you know, if Brazil was an imperialist country, then its relationship to Haiti would be entirely consistent. Um, but Brazil's relationship to Haiti is a different one. It's a capitalist. It's a relationship of a large, powerful capitalist country to Haiti, as is India's relationship to Kashmir. But it's not an imperialist relationship because these are not imperialist countries. So we have to start with the economic and social foundations of the countries that we're talking about look at that because that defines how they conduct their foreign policy and then we can begin to use the imperialist descriptor. Now to come to Russia and, and Ukraine, there is a history of Russian domination in Ukraine, no question of that, which is you know, it's rooted in the pre nineteen seventeen Tsarist Russia. The Russian Empire of the Tsars was an empire of um, that dominated and exploited dozens of oppressed peoples and nationalities. Ukraine won its first independence in 1918 as part of the Russian Revolution, or let's call it 1917, uh, regardless. Um, uh, and there was a, a troubled relationship between Russia and Ukraine during the time of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was particularly difficult in the 1930s when Ukraine's language and other national rights, uh, its culture were, I, th I think, I would argue, were victims of um, discriminatory policies. Uh, um, and also uh, the Soviet Union and Stalin are, are treated as responsible for the famines in Ukraine. Yeah. Well, in now well. You, you raise a complicated story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say just a word on that because it's so important. There were famines, plural, in the Soviet yeah. Union in 1932 and 1933. And these were the result of a host of factors, some historical, some to do with the uh, conditions, the natural environmental conditions of the day, things like drought, conditions of the soil, all these sorts of things. But the argument of the so-called Holodomor uh, thesis, that is that there was a deliberate policy by the leadership of the Soviet Union in Moscow under Stalin to starve the Ukrainian peasants into, into political submission by using famine, I reject entirely, and I'm very dependent on the research and writings of Professor Mark Togger at West Virginia University for that, although uh, there are many other writers as well. Um, 
that's such a big topic, topic, you know, and it's so important because Holodomor is officially recognized by the Canadian government and by most provincial governments in Canada, yeah. likewise in the United States. And I think yeah. So I read I read a book called Bloodlands recently that was that was along those lines. So I I've I've also been trying to figure out whether there's an alternative. Way by the way, there's an excellent there, review so. of Bloodlands written by Daniel Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R-E, which I, I highly recommend his book review. But I think, you know, the, the Holodomor theory is is uh, it's, it's a historical uh, falsehood. Um, not that a famine didn't take place, it did, but the idea of a policy of famine deliberately emanating from Moscow is, a, is I mean, it's, uh, it's just historically uh, inaccurate, put it it politely but so coming back so okay so there's a chapter in the night in the difficult years of the 1930s um, but you know I, I have Ukrainian Canadian colleagues who grew up in Ukraine in the 1960s 70s and 80s and this was not the Ukraine of the 1930s this was a uh, Ukraine where uh, Ukraine had a national language called Ukrainian where um, culture and, and Ukraine's national entity um, did well. I mean, could I say prospered? Maybe I, I wasn't there, and I won't uh, uh, perhaps go that far. But this, this was these were not decades of oppression of the Ukrainian nationality. The way in which, oh, for example, you could talk about First Nations people in Canada, even the Quebecois nation in Canada during these years was deeply discriminated against and, and, and oppressed. Uh, Ukraine's status was was a better one than that. Um, but of course, that's an unresolved historical question because you know there's a great deal of of um, friction still over this historic relationship between uh, Russia and Ukraine. I mean, I've I met Russians who claim there is no such thing as a Ukrainian nation. It's just a little thing, a historical accident that happened. And I I firmly uh, you know reject that view as do our colleagues on the, the nuclear war website. So yeah, but you see, all of these things that we're talking we're talking about. When you talk about language and culture and economic um, uh, relation, well, not so much economic relationship, but it's really important to avoid superficial characteristics of imperialism um, and, and not to make those defining characteristics because the defining characteristics are the social, political, and economic formation. What are its fundamental uh, characteristics and particularly what is it that fundamentally drives how its economy works? And where the surplus capital generated under the capitalist system is is directed, how it's invested for what purpose, and so on. So you want to understand imperialism in terms of a world system, core and periphery, and where countries like Russia or Brazil or India uh, fit in that. And so in that context, the imperialist powers are the ones that were traditionally the West. Uh, Europe and the United States, which have a, a special and super kind of powerful role economically uh, in exploiting the rest of the world. That's right. And then within their national boundaries, I mean, one of the very important characteristics of an imperialist country is the, the role of banking and finance, which right. in an imperialist country is, is central. So one of the things that we looked at in our article on Russia is what is the, the role in the place of banking and finance in the Russian economy. And it turns out that it's rather small uh, comparatively to 
um, to the Western imperialist countries. I think this, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say the same may even apply to China. And this, for example, is why we see the Russian and the Chinese governments playing such predominant roles in the economy. In Canada, the United States, Europe, it's the banks. Well, let's throw in the railways as well, maybe a few other corporate entities who run the government. The governments are just the fig leaves or the, the representatives of, of um, big finance, of big capital. Um, this is different in Russia. The government in Russia and the resources of the Russian government play a fundamental role in the economic dis, uh, direction of the country, even though it is a cap Russia is a capitalist country and it's you know the blind laws of capitalism that is the seeking of a profit and a surplus value that uh, fundamentally drive the decisions on investment that take place. But the the role of the Russian government in all of this is, is very predominant because it doesn't have an equivalent finance sector. It doesn't have you know six big the big six banks that Canada does that you know, fundamentally decide what is going to be um, produced, what's going to be invested, and how the country conducts itself abroad. And so now this is not this is not a static thing. I mean, I don't preclude that in 20, 30, 40 years um, that Russia, China, maybe Brazil, probably less likely even India could. Develop into imperialist countries in a very different world, but as far as I can see, since 1945, there hasn't been a single country added to the list of imperialist countries. It's around 25 countries, which range from the very large United States to the relatively small Denmark, uh, uh, Spain. I would even argue Iceland. Um, arguably, I think you could look at South Korea today and perhaps make a case because you look at the, the weight of industry and the weight of banking and finance in South Korea. Maybe you could make a case that South Korea is the one country that's sort of entered the club of imperialist countries. Maybe Singapore as well, because its, it's uh, banking and finance sector is, is huge relative, relative to the economy. But emphatically no for, for Russia, and I feel quite strongly the same about China as well. These are not imperialist countries, therefore they conduct themselves differently in foreign policy. But one thing that flows from that line of thinking is that it's a little bit less moralistic, right? Like if, if Russia is trying to prevent Syria from collapsing right now, or trying to, uh, tr trying to prevent these separatist republics in the Ukra in Ukraine from collapsing that's not because they're great people or because they're kind and gentle it's because of the structure of the the structural role they play in the world system makes it in puts it in their interests to to do those things that's right I, I think Russia and increasingly now China are in conflict with the imperialist countries. It's not of their own making, but it's because the imperialist countries are not living, not willing to live on equal terms with these two countries. They were willing to li to live um, more or less um, without um, troubling or harassing Russia during the 1990s and 2000s, especially in the 1990s, because you had a subservient national government in Russia, an embarrassment as the Russian people today would say. The Yeltsin government of the 1990s was an embarrassment to the Russian people because it was... Well, yeah, and there, that, that was an age of, of huge expansion of NATO, and it was also when NATO bombed Yugoslavia and broke up Yugoslavia, which arguably would have been very difficult to do with a, 
with a stronger and and independent-minded Russia at that time, right? For sure. And I, and I when I talk to my uh, my uh, left-wing colleagues with whom I'm so frustrated now because of their stances on on Ukraine and and also on Syria, I say, well, wouldn't it have been great in the year 2003? when the United States was poised to invade and destroy, all but destroy Iraq, wouldn't it have been great if there had been a country in the world with the, uh, with the means, but also the will to stand up to the United States and say, we're not going to let you do this? Well, this is more or less what's happened in Syria with Russia's rule. Well, I guess, I guess at that time, people would have said that that, that country was supporting Saddam Hussein, because that's what, that's what they're doing now. Well, you see, I think if we were back in 2003 today with the situation in Syria, people, if you remember 2003, there was all the propaganda saying, well, Saddam Hussein is a dictator, therefore it's okay to overthrow. And that was a that was a completely bogus argument, and the anti-war movement of the day made the correct argument, which is that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter that much to us in the West in, in countries that are threatening to invade and violate the national sovereignty of, of Iraq. It's, to, it's for the Iraqi people to choose their government. We oppose any intervention that would be a violation of Iraq sovereignty. You know, if we were, if, if we were back then today, people would say, well, we, we'd like to oppose an invasion of Iraq, but gee, look at the dictator Saddam Hussein. Well, this is exactly what's happened over Syria. So much of the... So much of the, the left in the Western countries has said, well, we'd like to oppose you know, regime change intervention in Syria, but uh, Bashar al-Assad and his government are dictatorial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, yeah, and this is why, I mean, you're frustrated and I, I share that because I, I also have trouble trying to, trying to understand the difference between uh, anti-war 2003 and, and pro-war 2004. I don't know, 14, 2011, 2017, or whatever it is, because as far as I can tell, I mean, Saddam Hussein and Bashar Assad are not are not very different. I mean, politically, they're they're similar. They they both have torture chambers and uh, political assassinations and and some kind of you know, some kind of collaboration and also antagonistic relationships with. The imperialists. So I didn't really, I don't get why the anti-war movement would understand the need to oppose regime change in Iraq and not understand the same principle in Syria. I th I think it's it's obviously a complicated story because as with you, we don't really have the answers to all this. But I mean, there's two things that we can look at. Number one is although there was you know, there was always um, domestic opposition to uh, Saddam Hussein and his government. That is for the right reasons, that it was an authoritarian government and, you know, there wasn't um, an opportunity for people to, to really uh, fully engage in the political process in that country. And at the beginning of the conflict in Syria in 2011, there were certainly people in the streets, as there were in Ukraine, as there were in Egypt, that were dissatisfied with the political and economic status quo. This is natural. These are all the capitalist countries with great inequalities, with governments making, you know, bad or even worse um, policy decisions uh, that would affect the ordinary working class as well as agricultural populations. So 
I mean, no one should deny that there was uh, dissatisfaction in Syria that should have been a that needed to be addressed by the government. And of course, there there were some measures taken by the Assad government, uh, and, and well before 2011, trying to address the you know the domestic discontent that was there. Um, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to say this. You know, this government has a stellar record in that regard. I, on the contrary, I think it bears some responsibility for the degeneration of the conflict. Insofar it was, that it was not uh, able or even willing to adequately address the domestic opposition. But that that opposition in Syria became rather quickly overwhelmed by the intervention of foreign and right wing forces aided, abetted, egged on, financed even by some of the Western countries and of course by Saudi Arabia and uh, others of the Gulf states. So that's one level of complication. But the other complication is that, you know, the Syrian government found the means to stand up against this intervention, which the Iraqi government did not. I mean, the Iraqi, the Iraqi government put up a symbolic fight against the U.S. invasion. Um, but, you know, the really decisive factor is it didn't have um, international allies as we see today in Syria with Russia and Iran and also the Hezbollah movement in Lebanon that are actually prepared to actively intervene and uphold the sovereignty of the Syrian government. That's the big change. Uh, yeah, which does bring us back to Russia again, right? I mean, we're back to, to Russia because I do think without Russia's intervention, Syria probably would have fallen. Oh, absolutely. Syria today would be like Libya, just a complete total disaster for the Syrian people and for the region and for the world. And here we come but, back to the discussion we were having earlier about imperialism and you know, what what are the interests. People who oppose Assad, again, with good reasons in, in many cases, especially, you know, our, our comrades, right, on the left who hate Assad for all of these reasons, they have argued that part of their argument is that Russia's Russia is being imperialist by intervening in this way. Yeah, but then, but then we come back, we have to look at, we have to look at, uh, the Russian economy, how it works, and of course look at the specific measures that Russia has, has taken in Syria. Now, Russia has zero need for oil and gas in the Middle East. It's the largest oil and gas producer in the world. It's not in Syria, so it can grab Syria's oil or grab whatever, whosoever's um, uh, oil they would like to get their hands on. Or they're not in Syria because there's some other gold mine of value to be mined in Syria. It doesn't exist. Uh, Russia's the presence of Russian um, capital abroad is minor, minor, compared to any of the imperialist countries, even the small European countries like Holland, Denmark, whatever. I mean, Russia's foreign, the, the presence uh, abroad of Russian capital is, you know, is negligible. And, and it seems, and seems when they, those billionaires spend their like to spend their money in Western Europe buying real estate in London and yeah, things. Yeah, entirely like speculative investment. I mean, the, the amount of money that's sitting in Cyprus banks, for example, in Russia, well, obviously, this has nothing to do with productive capitalist investment. But so when you look at Russia's intervention in Syria, I mean, it's pretty clear why Russia's there. It's because they don't want Libya to happen in Syria, because then the next step would be one of the republics on, on Russia's border. Russia is in Syria to try and stop the regime change chaos that we saw uh, in Iraq, then in, in Libya. And they get no thanks for this, which I think is, uh, is really unfortunate. Because when you have, good or bad, when you have an ally who comes along and prevents 
imperialist regime change intervention. Isn't that something that we should welcome? I, I... You'll hear on the left people saying, I don't, I don't really, I mean, a friend of mine, one of the first podcasts that I had, uh, my friend Steve Shalom, we were, we got into a debate about even the word regime change because Steve was saying regime change in itself is not a bad thing. If the regime is bad, changing it isn't bad. But for me, regime change is a very specific historically used term wherein when America when the United States invaded Iraq in two, in 1991 they said we're not going to do regime change and then in 2003 they said we are going to do regime change so it, regime change for me has always been an imperialist phrase and slogan and agenda so it's not a it's not a neutral thing that that we can equally well support on the left as as they can support as an imperialist power that's right, and I, I think that, that context and use of the term is very important. I'm really not aware of any circumstance in history where when an imperialist country is intent on overthrowing a sovereign and national government that anything good comes of that. I mean, I, I really can't think of examples, and, and certainly the contemporary examples that I've already mentioned, like Haiti and Egypt. I mean, I don't care how bad and right-wing a national government is. When you have... Um, an imperialist country or two or three come along and wanting to overthrow that government in the name of democracy and blah 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 this inevitably is, is a disaster for the people being targeted but also for the people of, of, the, of the country responsible for conducting regime change because this degrades our own uh, political status it degrades when, when, when governments like in Iraq and, and uh, Libya and Syria, which are you know not socialist governments and not particularly uh, progressive or anti-imperialist, uh, nonetheless, when these are overthrown, then you know we, we just go from uh, we just go from bad to worse. So yeah, that argument is false. But of course, the other argument made about Syria is that there is no U.S. intention to overthrow the Syrian government. This has been argued what? since 2011-12, which I think is an absurd argument. I mean, well, it occurred to me. I was talking to Vijay Prashad on the show last week, and it occurred to me that because uh, this was a recent writer named Anand Gopal made this argument in Democracy Now, and he said there's never been a regime change agenda by the United States in Syria, and it occurred to me that that might there's a there's a sense in which it's true and that is if you under if you think about what the united states is trying to do is simply to destroy syria as opposed to trying to overthrow assad and replace him with some kind of other type of government i actually think it makes more sense to understand it in terms of just the destruction of syria so in that sense it's not regime change it's more like state destruction that's the agenda Perhaps, but still, that's a bit of a word game because what we're fundamentally talking about is the destruction of national sovereignty of a, of a people and of a country. And that's without doubt uh, the aim and objective of the United States and its allies in Canada and Europe. So, Roger, one of the, another thing I, I, I'd like to ask you specifically, because I think you might know more about this than many of the people I could ask, which is... I know a bit about what Russia's doing in Syria by now, and thanks to you and Helena, a little bit about what Russia's doing in Ukraine. What I wonder about, I, I, I've often heard in recent discussions that are very critical of Russia and Putin about how, how Russia's, how Putin's party supports right-wing parties in, in Europe and other parts of the world. Yeah. Have you heard 
about this? Oh, sure, sure. This is this is very uh, commonly um, presented, peddled, I'll say, to use a, a verb. And I think it's, it's utterly bogus. I mean, number one, the Russian government is obliged to deal with governments as they exist in the world, whoever whoever uh, they may be. So, you know, pointing to Russia having, uh, you know, a formal diplomatic relationship with a with a right wing government somewhere in the world is, um, you know, that that's just not that's not an argument. Um, but this is mostly used when, oh, I don't know, some development happens in France concerning Le Pen and, um, uh, you know, some leader of the Russian government might make a formal statement to the effect of, oh, I don't know, we don't in interfere in the foreign affairs of another country or or whatever. There, you know, and then this is, gets presented as, as Russia being favorable to a right-wing movement. The example well, so it's that bad. So there's nothing, there's nothing more solid than that to this? I, I haven't looked at it myself, so... No, I, there's not. Oh, I mean, God. there is a small right-wing, or I'll call it an extreme right-wing that exists in Russia, as it exists in you know, every other capitalist country of the world, which is favorable towards people like Marine Le Pen in France and the, and the Front National in France and so on. But the government, no. And also uh, the people. I mean, I... I'm uh, what about Putin's party? Does Putin's party have kind of right-wing exchanges well, with... Well, point to yeah. examples where there may have been a political conference in Russia where the Front National was yeah, 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 yeah. party invited. Yeah. For example, okay. Um, and German I, is there a German right wing party that they have a relationship with? I or? doubt with Germany because you get into very uh, sensitive historical uh, there. I mean, obviously, for a Russian right wing party to invite uh, a right wing or even neo Nazi party in Germany to Russia, well, needless to say, that's not going to go over. So, I mean, look at the history of Russia. How could a country that suffered what it suffered under World War Two, you know, how could a government of such a country today have any, you know? Uh, friendly or sympathetic relationship to any movement in the world that would, you know, have some political tie or association to the Nazi movement of the 1930s and 40s. It's impossible. It's impossible. So, so you know, incidental things happen. A, a, a policy of the Russian government in support of right-wing movements around the world? On the contrary. On the contrary. Vladimir Putin went to Cuba in July of 2014 and cancelled the outstanding debt of, of that Cuba owed to what's now Russia, but a debt that was accumulated during the years of the 19, uh, sorry, during the years of the Soviet Union. Russia has just signed an agreement with Venezuela to sell uh, substantial amounts of grain to Venezuela because Venezuela has food procurement policies. I mean, I could cite a hundred examples like this of, of um, uh, gestures by Russia on the international scene which show that it's not an imperialist country and even show, you know, that the, the vestiges of the Russian Revolution of 1917 still echo through today. And Russia gets zero recognition for that, zero appreciation for that. Imagine imagine the United States going to Cuba and, you know, canceling all outstanding debts and just, just you know, wiping out the historical animosity or frictions that, that were there. It's unimaginable. But Russia, Vladimir Putin goes to Cuba, cancels the outstanding foreign debt, and they get zero coverage, zero appreciation, zero recognition of that. Wouldn't, wouldn't the comparison be, though, all of the wonderful things that the United States is doing in Ukraine now? Because it's Russia's backyard? And... No, I mean, you could try and make that argument. I don't see any uh, substance for it. Okay, no, let me correct myself. Sure. The Russian government is, is engaged in a, uh, 
you know, in a, in a, it's, it's in a very hostile world and it's dealing with a very hostile United States. So they will take diplomatic moves to, uh, to counter that. But that's precisely my point. This doesn't necessarily make the Russian government into a, you know, a new sort of progressive phenomenon for the world. But it, what it means is that these conflicts that are happening um, by the, these conflicts that are generated by the offensive of the imperialist governments against Russia, against China, whomever, this, when, when countries like Russia and China can stand up to this, this creates political space for other people in the world to survive and exist. And look at Latin America today. Latin America has the option of having economic relationships to China, to Russia, to some other uh, countries of the world they didn't have 20 and 30 years ago. It's a new world. It's a better world as a result. Does it make you know Russia into the new Cuba of today? No, but you know there, there are nuances of, um, of or shades of gray in this political situation in the world. It's not black and white. And let me give one other example quickly because I want to make sure we don't forget to mention this. Um, when the when the Crimean people saw the right wing coup in Ukraine in February 2014, they knew that civil war was coming as it came as it came just several months later to eastern Ukraine. They knew it was coming. They had the warning signals. They had the threats coming from Kiev that if you know Crimea must shut up and accept this illegal and violent overthrow of the president Yanukovych, for whom the, a large majority of Crimean people had voted. The Crimean people took it in their hands through their uh, this national uh, representative um, uh, government, which they had. They had. They were the only part of Ukraine that had a an autonomous uh, government, and they they um, they they broke away from this right wing coup regime in 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 Ukraine. They what I call they corrected the historical mistake that had placed them in Ukraine in the first place. And what what did Russia do? To, in response to that, Russia could have just turned its back and said, "You know what? It's it's not our it's not our problem." Whatever. No, Russia defended that decision, the democratic decision of the Crimean people to get the heck out of the way of this new right wing regime in, in Ukraine and to redress what they have always considered a, an historical uh, a mistake that was made in the Soviet Union. So I give that as another example of the role, um, you know, the progressive role that Russian foreign policy can play in a given circumstance in the world. In other words, one of the shades of gray that's out there in the world that we have to learn, I think, to understand. I, I do think back to 1999 and, and how NATO did argue that they were merely supporting the separatist aspirations of Kosovo uh, relative to a Yugoslavia that wanted to keep them in against their will. Is that how, how, would, how could you argue that that's different? I mean, the main thing is there was a referendum in Crimea, which, I mean, I know Western propagandists will say that, you know, the referendum... Uh, March 14, 2014, the referendum was staged, fake, whatever. Um, you know, I don't buy that. I, I think it was demonstrably a fair referendum that was held, overwhelming vote. And even, you know, I'll make this argument here, which is there have been polls conducted among the Crimean people um, many months following the March 2014 referendum in which um, the people have expressed their satisfaction with the outcome. Even the Ukrainians, the people of Ukrainian descent who were in Crimea, even a majority of those have expressed strong satisfaction with the decision to secede from Ukraine. That's what it was. It was a secession from Ukraine and to join or what I would say rejoin the Russian Federation. So there's two proofs here. 
there's the original referendum that took place, and then there's there's been the, um, the polling, including by Western polling firms, ever since. And you know, people people have doubts about this, and who are serious, that is, who aren't just talking, should go to Crimea and see for themselves. But sadly, very few people from the West, either from mainstream journalism or from alternative journalism, go to go to Crimea, and they should do so because when they go there, they're going to find a very well a fascinating place. I was there once. I was so fortunate. I do, I do want I do plan to go back. Um, they'll find a fascinating historical place, but they'll find a place that's you know on the move. I mean, yeah. granted in capitalist terms, so it would all limitations <laughs> uh, um, uh, taken there. Um, this is a place on the move, and it wasn't on the move in Ukraine. It was it was I call to make any, a bit of an analogy to Canada. Crimea had a lot of resemblances to the status that Newfoundland had. In Canada, until oil was discovered offshore of Newfoundland, that is a poor and underdeveloped, uh, a neglected part of part of the country. So, uh, and I think these kinds of proofs, I think, are are there uh, that allow us to judge Crimea on its own, you know, in its own terms. And um, thank goodness that the Russian government of the day and continues today to defend the, the decision of the Crimean people, just as it defends, the, in, in much more difficult circumstances, it defends the right of the people of Donetsk and Lugansk to you know, put up their hand and say, I'm sorry, we disagree. We don't want to be part of a right-wing Ukraine that wages war on us and that wants to make this rupture with, with Russia. Um, why, not, why would we not um, welcome the fact that we have such a government in the world today unlike the rather dreary uh, circumstances that we had 20 and 30 years ago where you know, the U.S. could pretty well do what it wants. Do you think that the Western left has a problem in terms of trying to understand every issue in terms of Russia and, and positioning ourselves relative to the Russian Revolution and different figures in the Russian Revolution and different factions after the Russian Revolution? Well, I've done a great deal of thinking about this, particularly, I mean, it's been the events of Ukraine itself that have propelled this, because Ukraine was one of the cradles of the Russian Revolution of 1917. You, you could almost speak of, we should almost speak of 1917 as the Russian and Ukrainian revolutions, because the Ukrainian part of the Russian Revolution had its own distinct dynamics, and Ukraine only became um, the revolutionary uh, governments that issued from the Russian Revolution in 1917 only became established in Ukraine in 1918. So it was a very distinct um, process that took place. And in fact, the, the early Soviet government played a very uh, decisive role in helping to shape this new country that came into the world called Ukraine. Uh, and for example, the, the very uh, regions of Donetsk and Lugansk, which are the center of the, the civil war today in eastern Ukraine, those were large... They were a mix of a Ukrainian um, peasant population and the beginnings of the uh, industrial, well, not more than the beginnings of the in industrialization of the region with a large Russian population. And so the decision very consciously was made that these, this region already uh, well on the road to industrialization should become part of Ukraine, not part of the Russian Federation. That is, in the, under, we're talking under the umbrella of what became the Soviet Union in order to assist Ukraine in its development in becoming a nation that could stand on its own two feet economically. So, I mean, there's tremendous history here um, uh, to be learned from. But what I've discovered, 
in my own sort of thinking and political trajectories, I think that the Western Marxism, and I'll, but, but I think I'll say Marxism, but I think this also applies to other progressive, uh, radical or revolutionary thought, anarchism, liberalism. I think it's been through a terrible decline um, in, for, for many decades. And the, the, the consequences of that are the terrible stands that are being taken by many uh, Western leftists on the events in Ukraine and, and Syria. I could point to others as well. I could point to defaults over what happened in Libya and then in Egypt. I would even go back to 2004 in Haiti, where the response to the coup in Haiti on the Western left was not impressive. Not impressive. Crickets a chirping. A lot of the Western left had been co-opted into the NGO movement. And, and I mean, we went to conferences in, in Montreal and in Venezuela where we were debating with, with leftists from Canada, from Brazil, over whether or not the coup in Haiti was a good thing. Honestly. No, I know. I was uh, right there with you. So it's been a terrible decline. And I think the reason, that the nub of this is that I think the, the understanding and interpretation of the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the 10 and 20 and 30 years that followed, which were all difficult years. There was no, I mean, there was a great deal of heroism involved in the Russian Revolution in 1917, but these were not, you know, I have trouble calling these years uh, heroic because they were, you know, in 1917, the revolution inherited a country that had already been destroyed by war. Yeah. And it had a terrible legacy of underdevelopment from Tsarist Russia, where the majority of the population, for example, was illiterate. And then you went into a civil war where the West tried to uh, destroy the, the Russian Revolution. So a civil war that lasted till 1921. Then you had very difficult um, decision making to do over economic policy and a lot of back and forth of war communism. Then the new economic policy. Then a very forced march towards um, uh, industrialization and collectivization of agriculture at the end of the 1920s, and then the rise of fascism in the Third World War. I mean, the Russian pe people haven't gotten, been given a break by history. And I think that a great many false interpretations of those years have come down, have been bequeathed to us. And I can speak of this personally because I spent, um, you know, several decades of my, most of my adult life until 15 years ago in a movement called Trotskyism, which I think had a number of grave ultra-left um, mistakes in its in its um, in its in its set of ideas in its doctrine, shall we say? So we've been we've been going back and forth over email about this, Roger. The the idea of ultra-leftism, because what I, for me, I, I mean, the more left, the better. How could you be ultra-left? That's a, I know it's a thing that Lenin called Lenin called. Uh, people ultra-left deviationists or something like that. Yeah. But, well, yeah. I mean, the ultra part is... Adventurism or something. It means or a left is, I think, and this is how I understand it and, and apply it in my language, is, you know, it's a leftism that's disconnected okay. uh, to, to a lesser or greater degree from the real um, objective social and political forces that we're dealing with, and also that um, gives a particular interpretation to, to history. Um, okay. Now, ultra-leftism isn't a stagnant thing. It becomes, you know, it, it sort of it, it rots itself out if it just if it continues. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing an ongoing rot of of Western Marxism that's you know began with a lot of ultra-left. Um, so, what did you what did you believe as a Trotskyist that you don't believe anymore? 
Um, well, I don't believe in a simplistic uh, interpretation of the Russian Revolution of 1917 and its aftermath. We had a very simplistic interpretation of a, gr of a grand heroic event that lasted sort of for 10 years until the middle to end of the 1920s, and then a bad guy came along named Joseph Stalin who usurped the whole process and, and um, you know, created a, a bureaucratic dictatorship and, and, and nightmare, and it's, uh, you know, when the revolution ended. Uh, it, of course, important legacies were, were left, and these were, were recognized. So they made it possible, for example, for Cuba to survive. I, I just think it's a it's a simplistic. It wasn't a, a simplistic interpretation. The first ten and years of the Russian Revolution were very difficult. A lot of mistakes were made. Um, Russia was in the, what became the Soviet Union was in an extremely hostile world, and so. Um, and so left-wing political theory had to look at that, examine it, and, and adapt, not adapt, but to, to take that into account. The Russian Revolution itself did that. It made sh very sharp uh, policy changes. For example, the big one was the change from the policy of war communism that marked the first several years uh, of the Russian Revolution to the new economic policy, which began in 1921, which gave license to private capitalist development particularly in the countryside. But um, yes, the, the simplistic idea of a heroic revolution and, and our job today is to replicate those, those circumstances, those conditions, is, is dead false. Um, mm -hmm. We want to avoid, if at all possible, the horrible civil war that marked the Russian Revolution in 1917. What can we do today? For example, what Venezuela is doing today, the Venezuelan government, trying to avert a direct military intervention by the United States. Um, this celebration of the first 10 years of Russia, a simplistic celebration, I'll call it, being heroic um, and to be, to be replicated, that's, that's a really flawed concept, and, and it comes out of the doctrine of, of Trotskyism itself, which has been reinforced over the years and decades this notion and it's um, yes the Russian Revolution was terrifically heroic it was the most important event of the 20th century well let's put China right up there as well to these China China's revolution and Russia's revolution these were the two big events that marked the 20th century and they should be celebrated but we should not celebrate them blindly and not recognize that you know for all of what they these revolutions achieved uh, for making the world a better place which I would argue they have done overwhelmingly. Um, that shouldn't blind us to to the, the limitations of them at the same time. And I think there's a lot of blindness, uh, has been a lot of blindness. And so the ultra-leftism, that is this sort of left-wing impulse, regardless of conditions and circumstances in history, uh, over time it, it, it declines, it degenerates, because it becomes frozen in time. And I think that's, I think we're seeing this in spades today in relation to this NATO in Eastern Europe. Is there something in Trotskyism that leads to dis having a particular hatred for third world dictators or or authoritarian states and like I'm trying to understand why, for example, the the main kind of Trotskyist organizations are are so pro intervention in, in Syria and, and hate the Russian intervention so much more than they do the Saudi or or the American roles. 
Well, of course, they would argue that they don't. That's okay. you know, okay. that's uh, unfair. Um, okay. But but I believe you are speaking to a reality, which is that you know what I see today coming from various left wing forces, Trotskyism included, but others. Uh, in relation to Ukraine and Syria, this is new. I mean, we never saw this. And uh, I mentioned earlier, in 2003, the Western left more or less, you know. Yeah, including the same groups that are that are for the overthrow of Assad now. Like, yeah, they they were pro, they were anti-war in 03. Right? Yeah. What's what's happened is you see, for 25 years, the Western left ignored what was happening in Russia. Probably that's the case with China, although I'm less familiar with the literature. I know there are good, good writers. There, there, I think there are more good writers who are following China than is the case with Russia. Russia has been largely ignored. Um, and so remember, this is in a context of deep anti-Russian prejudice that we all grew up in because of the Cold War. Even someone of your age, you grew up. Oh, with, yeah. I've seen so many. I've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, kill so many Russians. Yeah. So this, this runs very, very deeply in, in Western um you know, culture and ideology. And so he had 25 years of ignoring what was happening in Russia. I mean, I'm, I, I know there's there, there would have been analysis written and published in, in Russia, in the Russian language, but in the English language, next to nothing. Even today, three years after the events, uh, the beginning of the events in Ukraine, you see very little, um, you know, real deep analysis of, of Russia. What exactly is Russia? Where did it come from? What changed in 1991? And so this is all coming now, um, to, uh, we're paying a price, a political price for this today, because the events in Ukraine in 2014 just, you know, it's like a lightning flash saying, okay, you need to understand what is this Russia, because if not, you're not going to understand what's going on in Ukraine. And so we didn't have the analysis of Russia uh, happening after the demise of the Soviet Union. And then really since 2014, people are just running away from the, the subject. I mean, our, our website is largely shunned and boycotted on, on the Western left. People simply don't want to engage in the issue of Russia. They don't want to invite people like us to come to conferences and debate the issue. They don't, they don't invite you on their podcasts. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, a big, it's a big problem. There is a, there's a turning of a blind eye to all this as if somehow it will go away if we ignore it. And so, but where this comes from, where, well, I, you know, it's been, um, it's, since the, the demise of the Soviet Union, we've seen um, a decline of this very, um, you know, Western Marxism, and I would argue anarchism too, because I've read terrible things that anarchists have said and done in relation to the events in Ukraine and all the same problems. Um, so then, you so then, if we transport ourselves back to 1990, we really find the same thing with with the Soviet Union. I mean, there were the the um, analysis made of of what became of the Russian Revolution um, with the rise to power of Stalin, um, I think were simplistic ones. And I give an example. With Earlier, we were talking about the, the theory of famine, forced famine in uh, Ukraine in 1932-33. I grew up with this as received wisdom. Today, when I read about that, I'm, I'm horrified because I, I've, I'm reading the history, and I know it's a lot more complicated than, uh, than such a simplistic tale. So, you know... The, the, the problems, I think, go back to the 1920s and 30s when set um, um, doctrines were put in place. And then Trotskyism made a particular decision at the end of the 1920s to return back to a theory that had been set aside in 1917 called the theory of permanent revolution, which is an ultra-left 
Um, it's an ultra off theory. It's, it's basically arguing you can sort of substitute <clears throat> or you can leap over difficult material, um, uh, social, economic, and political conditions by by you know willing your way towards towards socialist revolution. So I think many of the theoretical problems go back to they the, wouldn't they wouldn't accept that as like what you just said is not what they would call how they would characterize the theory. Though, no, right? no. I mean today's Trotsky is those that would still use the term would, would regard the theory of permanent revolution as you know the fundamental uh, central point of their of their political outlook. The other big thing lacking, and I'm really finding this as I read to try and understand more what happened with the transformation of Russian agriculture, is that the Russian, the difficult economic decisions of uh, the Russia made in the 1920s are also not well studied, and they require, uh, I think, a, an entirely new study. I'm reading right now Stephen Cohen's biography of Nikolai Bukharin, which uh, Cohen published in 1973. I don't think I ever read the, that book. I may have read it, but I forget it. It's, it's a fantastic new look at, at all of the um, debates over how Russia could move forward economically in the 1920s. I give that as a small example, but uh, there's a lot no, of... Yeah, but it's, it's, it's really good to read things that were published a long time ago so that it at least was a different kind of propaganda regime. I, I read, you probably read Medvedev. There was an author named Medvedev who was very critical of Stalin called... Let history judge or something. Yes, yes, I remember that title. It's been a while. You know, and I, I thought it was it was from 1980 something. I thought of it as more you know more legitimate almost because it was from then than than I would have read something now because I'm like now I I don't know how much of their writing about Stalin in order to make me hate Putin. Well, you know, but, there's an excellent new biography of Lenin that was published by Monty um, Review Press in I think 2015, maybe 2016. Thomas. K-R-A-U-C-Z, yeah. he's Hungarian. It's an excellent new, very refreshing new look at uh, Lenin's role and contribution to the Russian Revolution in 1917. Uh, I found that book extremely helpful to... Okay. to I'll to check read. it out, yeah. Yeah. I read Deutscher's, uh, you know, biographies of Trotsky and Stalin, and I know he was writing one on Lenin, but... Yeah. Very and upset I went back and read Deutscher's... Um, Biography, three, three volume biography, and I, I thought it was quite good. I was pleased to see how good, how yeah. critical it was of the whole process. This was not at all kind of an uncritical fawning biography. No, he's a, he's, Deutscher was amazing. Yeah. I was quite um, pleased to read it. Okay, Roger, I, I should, I've, I'm hearing some, I'm hearing some additional toddler drama, so I think I should probably cut it off there. Um, but let's stay in touch, and maybe I'll, we could. You know, keep this conversation going, and you could sure, come back. Sure, this has been very helpful for me just to get my own um, thinking on a lot of these very um, difficult um, things that we're talking about: contemporary politics, but also the history that's brought us to here. I mean, I'll let me close. I want to say one thing, which I think you know, what we need: Western Marxism needs a rebirth, not you know, some look at look back here and there and we'll talk about this again no no I think I think we've seen a quite a qualitative decline in um, in Western Marxism that is shown by the responses to events in Ukraine and, and Syria and I think this is um, this is what we're faced with is a, is a rebirth honestly I think things have come to this not not a simple um, you know, let's read the text over once more one time again and to see what else we can learn no we've we've, we've we're we're in a um, 
a stage of deep problem where also we need to integrate more, much more fully the reality of the global warming crisis. This has not been adequately integrated into uh, today's today's Marxism. So that's the challenge that I would put out to uh, to listeners today in this interview. But yeah, I agree. There's we're we're not we're definitely not responding to the problems of our times that in any kind of proportion to to them. So I, I appreciate that thought and I thank you again for coming on. You're welcome.